good to be back with you again. This time with my wife, Naomi. Good to have her here. And uh, thoroughly enjoyed my visit a little over a year ago from the after the previous Christ-Centered Churches Conference. I bring you greetings from uh, Sepulpa Bible Church, which is uh, just a little outside of Tulsa, the town of Sepulpa. So if you're ever up there, if you find yourselves up there on a weekend, look us up and we'll worship with you there. If you'll turn to the book of the prophet Ezra, chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1, the scripture reading this morning was familiar as I heard the brother begin to read from Isaiah 40, and when he, when he got to the statement in verse 15 about the nations being as a drop in a bucket and as accounted less than nothing before God, then I remembered and thought, oh yeah, that... That passage was on the, uh, the form that Josh sent me <laughs> to ask if there was a scripture that I wanted read before the message. So that's, that's why we're reading that, because that's pertinent to my message, and I picked it. <laughs> so sometimes it takes a while for these things to come back to mind. And that's because, from what I have to say from Ezra 1 this morning, we see that sometimes... Uh, while we grieve at current events, we are not thinking as soundly or as biblically as we profess to on other fronts. Let me read you from Ezra chapter 1, and I trust that as we explore this chapter and get into our theme, you'll see more exactly what I mean. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses, of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 basins of bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. 
All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. If you've read your Old Testament much, you know that there are people that are regularly, there are writers and preachers who are often, too often in my opinion, trying to find something about our own nation in the pages of Scripture. Bible prophecy and Bible history do not really have a lot to say about many of the nations of history and what they did. It would be fair, really, to say that the history of most nations is pretty much out of the picture, isn't it? It's largely ignored. It's of no concern. And just as I cited from the scripture reading that the brother did a while ago, that the view of God of many of the nations is like they are as a drop in a bucket, a speck of dust on the scales. <clears throat> and the same is true of our nation and its politics. We're, we're not there. The Bible seems to only comment much on the history of nations when those nations are being used to fulfill or carry out God's plans in the world, when his plans are in view. What is interesting is it often does not particularly matter whether the individual rulers or leaders of those nations know that they are being used by God or not. What matters is that God is accomplishing his plans. Men who are willing to serve God and men who are unwilling to serve God end up serving God. They end up accomplishing God's purposes. They carry out his purposes. And Ezra is one of the books of the Bible that is best at telling a story to that effect. It is a book that, and this has got a lot to do with why I taught it at uh, our church a few weeks ago and decided to teach it here. It is one of the biblical books that can convince us that many of our worries about what is going on in the world around us are uncalled for because of a truth that we say that we know, and that is the truth that God is entirely in control, that God is sovereign. And Ezra is also one of the best books ever written to show us this, that whatever else is going on, whatever else is happening in current events, whatever kinds of leaders we have, whatever direction our nation is going, if we focus ourselves on worshiping our God in spirit and in truth as we should, so much of what needs to be happening in our lives will still fall properly into place. And you'll see more of what I mean. Now, I once taught the whole book of Ezra in 11 messages, and I hope the church enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed myself, you know, enjoyed the journey. It got uh, the, the catalyst for that at the time was when my close friend, uh, a brother who also happened to be my dentist, but that's another matter. It's kind of a miracle, I guess, when your dentist is a close friend. So <laughs> but, uh, a lot of trust there. But a fellow named John Bauer had passed away uh, rather prematurely in our sight, never prematurely in the plan of God, but at, 50, at 59 years old in the year 2005. And he had always more or less claimed Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10 as his life verse. You may want to look over there to see what I mean. And because of his passing, I was thinking about that verse. We ended up 
with a fund at, at, our, at the church that we were part of at the time that uh, started a library in his name, and uh, it ended up being called the Ezra 710 Library, based after John's verse. But that verse, right about in the middle of this book that Ezra had written, seems to be a comment that someone else wrote about Ezra, where it tells us that for this Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. I don't know if he said that about himself, as I say, or if somebody editorially inserted that by the work of the Spirit of God in his book, but this has got a lot to do with why he wrote his book. He had been a man who first studied the law of God, but he studied it in a way to first nourish his own soul, to feed himself on it, to say, I need to learn this so as to do it, to practice it, and then I will teach what I have learned. And he certainly taught his uh, hearers in Israel a sound view of, for one thing, the providence of God and the way that God works in history. So let's talk first about the background of, of this passage, chapter 1, which obviously centers very much on Cyrus, king of Persia. Who is Cyrus, king of Persia? When we open these pages... Where exactly are we in history? Well, Cyrus reigned over a huge empire <clears throat> for about a 10-year period, 539 B.C. to 530 B.C. If you're a history buff and you like to look this sort of thing up, you'll find that he is sometimes known in history by the name Cambyses, C-M-B-Y-S-E-S. -E His kingdom, geographically, was more than twice the size of the current United States. It was, at the time, the largest kingdom in the world of those times. It stretched from Turkey, where he could look across a thin strait of water that is called Hellespont, and he could see Greece. So if you know your European and Asian geography, you, you've got a picture in your mind. You know what that looks like. And... Uh, he and his armies tried several times to conquer Greece by crossing that strait of water and were providentially hindered from doing that on several occasions, even when they had the superior forces. They still couldn't get it done. But his kingdom stretched from there, from that easternmost point of Asia that we know of as Turkey, all the way to India. If you know something about the globe, that's a lot of mileage. That's a pretty big span of land. So this was a fellow with major power in the world in those times. You, of course, know the Babylonians. You remember the Babylonians who had invaded and taken Israel into captivity? Well, Cyrus and his kingdom of Persians had conquered the Babylonians. And our, our modern good buddies who love us every day, the Iranians, they are uh, descendants of those Persians. <laughs> in the same way that the Iraqis are descendants of the Babylonians. So, so here he is, the most powerful world ruler of the times, <clears throat> and he's in his first year of rule. He's in his earliest days of rule, which if you're thinking a little bit about how rulers often behave during that time, a new man in power tends to like to get his agenda rolling, you know, with things like executive orders and stuff like that. In that first year of his rule, it says, rather, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord that came by the mouth of Jeremiah. So he got stirred up, not at his desk with his pen, 
to write some order that he would like to see accomplished. But here he is, Cyrus, king of Persia. He's stirred up by the Lord to do something. And let me tell you a little bit about Cyrus, and it'll interest you as to how fascinating it is that he, in particular, is stirred up by the Lord. As you know, when you, uh, you, you've probably experienced many a, a morning with the Word of God or a day of your own life when you find it's, uh, uh, I know I'm this way at times, where it's a little hard to get ourselves stirred up by the Word of the Lord to what we ought to do, right? That doesn't always come as naturally as it should. But Christian, God can even stir up incredibly powerful men who are not even believers to do His will and to accomplish what he wants in the world. Cyrus decides that he has been provoked in some way or other to see to the construction of a temple for the God of Israel. He decides that he will send out a proclamation, it tells us, throughout all of his kingdom, and put it in writing. That means that he put it in the hands of messengers to run around the kingdom and take these letters about this. They were carried all over the kingdom to announce this, to raise donations for building this temple, and volunteers to work. Now, Cyrus's other, readings, uh, other, other writings, and we do have some other writings of his, and I'm actually going to be able to quote you some, reveal to us a man <clears throat> who is, to, to kind of borrow an ancient term, He is what has been called a henotheist. Now, there's one that I don't think you've probably thought a lot about, most of you, a henotheist. So let's let's get there. You know what a monotheist is. That's someone who believes in that there's one God. You know what a polytheist is. Probably most of you do. That's someone who believes in multiple gods. You know what an atheist is. No God, a belief in no God. A pantheist, how about that? Pantheists believe that God is revealed more or less in everything. He's in the trees, he's in the rocks, he's in the water. Just uh, all, of, all of creation in some way or other manifests God, but not in the way that we think it manifests God. All of it possesses deity to the mind of the pantheist. Well, a henotheist is a little bit of a different one. Henotheist is usually, a, he's always, a, pan, he's always a, a, only a polytheist too. He believes in many gods, but... They say that a henotheist is someone who believes in a variety of gods, but who strongly suspects that one of them is the big dog. (laughs) Strongly suspects that one of them is the powerful one that really carries most of the clout. One of them's a lot stronger than the others. And this much is clear from verse 1. This pagan king knew that the Lord God had told him to build a temple back for him in Jerusalem, And you're going to see that being a henotheist, he did this for his own reasons. His motives aren't exactly what we'd call uh, gospel-centered. He's not particularly evangelical here. But you know, for a change, this is one of those instances when we've got a pagan king who isn't calling for the worship of himself. He's actually saying, I want to encourage the worship of the God of Israel, the true God. So here we've got the work of the Spirit of God stirring Cyrus, and it's not in in any way lessened, that's not in any way diminished by the fact that he was a man with many wrong views of God, idolatry in his heart at points, which we're going to see, 
And if you're observant of history, you know that God uses men and women like that all the time. And so in verse 3, he tells the Jews to uh, get with it. Look at that again. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He wants them to get with this, to get with the program of what he is convinced needs to be done. He tells their neighbors to help them. Verse 4, let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. I know God has moved on me to get this done. And so he's saying, are, are there some of you Jews that would like to be involved in this? I really encourage you to get on you know, the Cyrus train here and do this because your God has told me to make this happen. And, well, and as for Jews who aren't going to go back and rebuild, he charges them anyway, you're going to help with the task financially. So the Jews who go back to build are encouraged and funded, and the ones who won't go are still going to have to pay for it. That's pretty familiar, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you, you, some, some, of, some of you are going to get government money, and guess what? The rest of you that don't get the government money, you're going to pay for the government money. So, <laughs> and uh, too bad, doesn't matter much whether you like it or not, the king says, well, the king not, the king not only says, I said so, the king says, God said so. Well, God told me this. So, so in response to this, verse 5, three tribes decide to get involved and go. It says that Judah and Benjamin and the Levites all decide to return. Uh, we can easily see why the Levites would have gone and had a stake in this because, of course, they, they had a role back there. They knew they'd be important people back there. They would be priests. Uh, so uh, this would put them in a powerful position. And then verse 6 comes the outpouring of support from others who encourage them with the monetary support, probably some of it happily and some of it more or less forcibly. You see in verse 6 that they send them vessels of silver and gold and goods and beasts and various costly wares. And finally, something I find particularly interesting in verse 7, Cyrus himself gives to the cause, but not so much out of merely his own wealth, but it says he brings out the vessels that were in storage that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple originally. Things Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple and that he had placed in front of his gods, which was a gesture of submission. The implements that were made for the God of Israel are now going to serve my God. Well, Cyrus now is in possession of all that stuff. And he has it all gathered up and given back. And it fascinates me how it's all very... Carefully counted. Notice the careful count of everything that's there. Sometimes, you know, when, when we see, when we experience times of loss in the Christian church and times of loss for the advance of the gospel, sometimes God is preserving a lot of what we thought was lost and waiting for a time when he will bring it back. He has the very blessings that we thought we had forever lost in storage and being held for the right time. Maybe a time when he determines that a church has learned what it ought to have learned, or even if we didn't necessarily learn what needed to be learned, but he has just ordained that this is the time to bring those things back. This is when to restore. And he had decided he was going to restore. <clears throat> so here you are. Let's say you're a, you're a godly Jew, 
living in the Persian Empire as a result of this captivity. How is a godly person supposed to respond to this, a command, an order from a pagan king? You know, do I, do I need to tell you that believers have not always responded rightly in history to the leadership of ungodly kings and authorities? Especially pagan ones. Especially idol-worshipping ones. I mean, I, I can say, you know, looking back on the last four years, there are a number of things about President Trump that concerned me, things that I did not consider to be good character, but there were also many things. I would say there, it, it is not hard to number numerous things for which I was thankful. Quite a number of things I could easily give thanks for and say these were mercies of God. And now, as a new administration starts, I, I don't hesitate to say from here that I'm, I'm still waiting to figure out something that I'm thankful for as I look at the current administration. I don't see anything on the horizon yet that looks very likable. No. All is very disappointing. And so as we consider that and say, well, and this it's been very common for believers to find it difficult to have the right attitude about ungodly rulers. We struggle with our attitude and how we're to think of them, particularly the ones that uh, have no desire to serve God at all. This is no doubt part of why the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, when he said, I want you to pray for your kings and all those who are in authority. We need to pray for them. So hear this history and see what a dilemma they faced, and I think we may be able to relate to it in our history. Because <clears throat> just as these Jews needed it, we must have a strong view of God's sovereignty if we are going to know how to live under authorities like even those who rule our own nation. We're going to need more than a doctrinal view of God's sovereignty. We're going to need a trusting, submissive view of God's sovereignty. Do you hear that? It's not, it can't just be a doctrinal view of it. It can't just be an ability to state it as a point of systematic theology, but we've got to have a trusting and submissive view of the sovereignty of God. Concerning our mayors, our governors, our president, our courts, because we are, we are always going to live under a lot of people who do not serve God, but who are still being used by God to serve His end. And if we do not accept that God's using them for His ends, then really we have succumbed to thinking that unbelievers who rule over us are not operating under the sovereignty of God. But we know better. And I believe that those in this room are convinced of God's absolute sovereignty. And I want us to have a trusting view of that. So consider being in this situation. Remember what I said a while ago about Cyrus being what you'd call a, a henotheist. Well, archaeologists unearthed an artifact in 1879 which was named the Cyrus Prism. And it had a surprising amount of readable material on it. There's a lot that they find on these things that are not readable at times, but this one had a remarkable amount of reading of, of legible material on it. So this is the same Cyrus. And obviously translating from their language to English, there are difficulties in translation, but see if you can catch the thrust of how this man thinks, all right? I am Cyrus, king of the world, whose rule Bel and Nebo love. Those are gods. 
and whom they desire as king to please their hearts. And Marduk, the great lord, that's another god, induces the magnanimous inhabitants of Babylon to love me as I daily endeavor to love him. And I have returned to these sacred cities on the opposite side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries which have been in ruins for a lengthy time, and the images which once lived there, and I established for those images permanent sanctuaries. I also have gathered for them all of their former inhabitants and returned them to their habitations. Furthermore, I resettled upon the command of Marduk, the great lord, all the gods of Chingir and Akkad, whom Nabodonus had brought into Babylon in the anger of the Lord God's unharmed, into their former temples, to the places which make them happy. What does that sound like? Sounds like somebody who's courting the favor of a whole bunch of different deities. <laughs> About the same time, he also, we know from other writings, that he had the temple of a god called Sin. Isn't that a great name for, a, for an idol? <laughs> that was that god's name. Not, not a single thing to do with our word for sin, but this was the moon god that goes back even to, uh, it's a form of the name of the moon god that Abraham worshipped back in Ur of the Chaldees. And he had a temple built to that moon god. <clears throat> and in the brick cornerstone of that temple, this was inscribed, which has still been preserved, which says, sin, that god, Illuminator of heaven and earth. Well, he's got a high view of him, doesn't he? With his favorite sign delivered into my hands from the four corners of the world, I return this God to his shrine. The great gods have delivered all the lands into my hands, the lands which I have caused to dwell in peaceful habitation. So he has credited this God's sin for delivering the lands into his hands. He has credited uh, Marduk, for causing the people of Babylon to love him. He has said that Bel and Nebo knows that I desire to please their hearts, and so they do good to me. He has said that I have returned Chengir and Akkad to their temples. Talk about offending the God who says, I will not give my glory to another. This guy likes to give glory to everybody. In other words, Cyrus is no worshiper of the God of Israel. So we have to understand his decree to rebuild the temple back in Jerusalem in the context of what you've just heard. Cyrus is a whole lot like, <laughs> I can't remember which president said this. I don't want to credit the wrong one or blame the wrong one, so I won't. But Cyrus is a lot like whoever it was that I remember hearing say, you know, well, I think I do remember who it is, and I think you probably know who it was too, but... Islam is a great religion. Christianity is a great religion. Judaism is a great religion. Hinduism is a great religion. All of these are great religions. He just wants to please the people of all these different religions. He's a lot like whoever said that. Cyrus decided at some point during his reign that all of these are worthwhile deities to please. And that he wanted to return the gods to their temples. <clears throat> So there's plenty that we know about Cyrus from history that leads to the conclusion that he resembled that kind of thinking. He wanted worshipers of any god and all gods to pray for him. He wanted all the worshipers of all the gods to be thanking their god for him. He wants all the worshipers to speak well 
of them, of, of him to their gods. He's really covering all of his bases. He wants every god that anybody ever prays to, to smile on him. So he did favors for all of them. He's a religious pragmatist. He's a one-man Athens. And the Jews, they serve the God of heaven. And they know who the real God of heaven is. And they know that this is, he is not as Cyrus thinks him to be. And this king has just ordered God's people about what to do. He has just told God's people what he wants them to do. You will go rebuild a temple for your God in Jerusalem. And do you think if you'd heard that, would there be any difficulty in your heart? Would you struggle with, I'm not sure I can cooperate with that. I don't know if I can have any part in this. This guy's an idolater. I think I just have to tell him to repent. Would you wonder if we should go along with that order? Well, he just, this is just a wicked king that builds temples for every god out there. We can't have any part in that. But then it appears that some of these Jews probably thought, you know, we can't make him serve God. But it's really not all about necessarily whether he serves God. He just said that we can go serve God. He says you may serve God according to your conscience because of how God moved him. And this seems to be one of those rare moments when at least some of the Jews manifest some righteous wisdom in that they don't view Cyrus's many compromises on other points as requiring that they resist the opportunity that's just been handed to them. They've been given an opportunity. Now, I'm sure there were godly Jews. You know, we, we know this from uh, other godly Jews and their interactions with kings in the past. I'm sure there were some godly Jews who had access to Cyrus, who may have shown him the truth of the Old Testament that they knew, and who may have cautiously and gently exhorted him to repent of serving other gods and to turn to the God of Israel and all of that. But I mean, what, what do you do if you do that? And Cyrus just, you know, in his kindly way, smiles down at you from his throne and says, well, thank you for sharing that opinion. You know, that's just your view. That's your interpretation of things. And he goes on what, you're, what he's doing, building gods and their temples everywhere. But he still wants to let you serve the true God. He still says you may serve the true God. Well... These folks took what providence gave them. And they understood God isn't necessarily trying to get the whole world to worship him as they ought to, but he is calling his people out for worship, and he's calling them to worship him as he ought to, as they ought to be. And the Lord can get the service that he's due from his people in the midst of human and government sin. He is not thwarted by the presence of human rulers who don't serve him. His church will advance despite the fact that there are kings and presidents who are against us. We don't have to have a friendly or favorable climate for the church to be strong, do we? That's never been true. In fact, if you know much about world history, even recent world history, you recognize that sometimes the church thrives and grows remarkably in the most hostile of climates. And so I say a lot of this because there are many of us, many who are uh, Christians, who don't always behave even as wisely as some of these Jews did in this moment with Cyrus. Does serving God always call for us to put up fervent resistance? Does it call for us to man the barricades and demand that our government do the right thing and that they serve God with purity or we will fight them? 
That's the wrong goal. We can't make them do that. You're going to be disappointed if you go at things that way. We don't have to resist them. But rather we can say, and we should say, let us, we will serve God with purity. We will point you to the way to serve God with purity. But ultimately it's primarily about His church. We are going to do what we feel called to do from the Word of God. We know what our calling is. And whether you heed us or not, we are going to have to learn how to serve Christ around you and despite you and even beneath your authority at times. But 1 Timothy 2 doesn't tell us to resist them. It tells us to pray for them and to pray for and seek their salvation and even to request God grant us peace with life unto them that we might serve with peace and tranquility even as we labor for others' salvations. Now, you know, contrast it with this, just so you can see with clarity what I'm saying. If Cyrus had told the Jews that I am having temples built for the worship of all of these gods, and you must not only go back to Jerusalem and worship your God, but you must tour the temples that I've built, go on tour and worship at each of them in a good faith cooperative effort with my multicultural plan. What would they have had to say then? Well, then they'd have to say, no. No, we can't have any part in that. You see, there's the line. There's the line. There's a difference in Cyrus worshiping other gods and Cyrus saying, you must join me and worship other gods with me. No, now you've crossed the line. You can't tell us how to worship God. You can't tell us who to worship. You're outside your authority there. Cyrus did not come to salvation from what we know. And also, within two chapters of Ezra, we read, uh, by the time you get to chapter 3 and 4, of local adversaries of Israel being so hostile that they were obsessed with stopping the building of this temple for the God of Israel. But here you've got Cyrus, a king that is still a thousand miles away, who serves any God there is if there's something that will be convenient for him in it. And he remains a supportive backer willing to pay for the temple of the true God. And he continues to finance it despite the resistance of God's enemies. He had some wrong wrong reasons, but he was still being used by God in his sovereign plan. Brethren, I'm waiting to see how God is going to use some of these ungodly rulers around us. What is God going to do with them to fulfill his own plans and to accomplish his own will in spite of themselves? And in these opening verses, there's just no denying God did something in Cyrus' heart to stir him, to free the Jews from his land, to command, promote, and personally fund a temple for God in in Jerusalem. And you know, 25 centuries later, we find that the situation of God's people just hasn't changed all that much. Hard choices are still going to be there. Believers in Iran and China in Iraq and Indonesia and just country after country that I could name, they all have different stories that we could spend the rest of our time talking about, have faced the decision of exactly when do we submit to government and when do we say no, no further? When do we plant our feet and take a stand and say we will not do that and we suffer for it? And when do we get along and say this is something that we can at least for the time being live with? You face it at your job on occasion. When do you stand on a principle at work and suffer for it and say, I'm going to do this even if I lose this job? And fire me if you have to, but this is just how I've got to walk with God and serve Him faithfully. And then when do you say, you know, 
There are ungodly people in this company. There are ungodly people at the top of this company. There is wickedness happening here that I don't like, but I can serve God and do my job here without having any part in that. Well, sometimes you can. Sometimes you can, and that resembles this. And if that wasn't true, then how in the world did Joseph ever serve as Pharaoh's right-hand man? But he did it, and he was righteous. How did Daniel serve in a high-ranking role in Babylon without compromise? I mean, the the guy takes a three-year scholarship in a college with a department of necromancy in it. (laughs) But he's not part of that department, you see. (laughs) And he didn't teach any courses in that subject. So whether, whether it's the empire, or the company, or the school, or your neighborhood association, whatever it is that's run by evil men, we often fate, we've got decisions we've got to make. And in the Bible, we often read of godly people living under the authority of those who are not godly people. And we can do it. We can do it in our future here. We can serve Christ in a culture that hates Christ. We can serve Christ in a, under leaders who wish we weren't even here who make up lies about us and would like to shut us down, we will at times find that we can serve Christ in cooperation with the authority of men who don't know Christ. And what we find ultimately, and if you, I encourage you to read through the book of Ezra sometime, and you'll find that what these Jews, what the wise Jews at this moment recognized is that this is about the purity of our worship. As long as we're allowed to worship God as we've been taught to, And as the Word of God has required us to, then we can go along. You know when they have one of those services in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., and you see some of the abominations that go on and the prayers and the kind of statements that I made a while ago about all these religions being great religions and so on, you know, where where it's all mingled together, we couldn't have any part in that. You couldn't have amened uh, Representative Cleaver's prayer the other day, could you? You know? And uh, not just the, uh, the a-man-a-woman part either. That, that wasn't the worst of it, was it? <laughs> he said a lot prior to that that was much worse. On such occasions, we couldn't be part of it. But you know, what if you were asked to serve in the cabinet of a president who did? What if you were asked by a local politician who was an ungodly person to be one of his advisors? Could you work for someone with whom you vehemently disagree? about these things. A godly man named Obadiah served in King Ahab's cabinet. We've already talked about Joseph in Egypt and how Daniel was not, uh, he was a light in Babylon. He was not a compromiser. You can serve God among these people. A funny illustration, kind of a humorous illustration of this that I remember seeing on the news one time was uh, there was a, was a, a political advisor some years ago. I never hear about him anymore. Maybe he's passed away. I'm not sure. A guy named Dick Morris. Do you remember seeing Dick Morris on Fox News at times? And he was fairly conservative, but at one point he accepted a job in the President William Clinton administration. And I remember seeing someone asked him one time, they said, why, (laughs) Mr. Morris, with your Reagan-esque views of economy and things of this sort, why did you accept a job in the Clinton administration? And I thought it was pretty wise of Mr. Morris to smile, and he looked, he said, well, duh. He said, it's because the President of the United States asked me to come work for him. 
He said, that's kind of hard to turn down. He said, you know, I, I had prestige. I had influence. I had opportunity to change policy. He said, sure, I disagreed with my boss most of the time. But I had opportunity to do something good. At least I got listened to. And that seems to be how a lot of these Jews took this. Here's an opportunity for us to do good. Even though Cyrus doesn't know God. We've got an open door kicked in front of us. Do we really think? You read through the book of Acts. And when the Apostle Paul prays for open doors for the gospel, you just think about what you know of the book of Acts. Did every open door that occurred for the gospel in the book of Acts happen because someone who served Jesus opened it for Paul? <laughs> Are you kidding? All sorts of ungodly people ended up opening doors, not by their own will, but by the plan of God. And Paul would find himself, you know, here, here he's kicked from judge to judge and trial to trial, and he ends up in prison in Rome, and then pretty soon he's writing letters that are saying, like, I can't believe the opportunities that have come for the gospel because I keep going to prison. You know? And now I'm having influence on Caesar's household. Well, those, those weren't doors that were opened by people that were saying, you know, we love Jesus and want to advance the gospel. They were being opened by the plan of God using people who did not love the gospel. And take the early Christians. We've already begun to talk about the five centuries after Ezra. Living under Roman rulers. You know that the early Christians were not persecuted because they worshipped Jesus. Romans don't care who you worship. When you've got hundreds of gods already, who cares if some group comes along and adds another one? They were persecuted because they wouldn't worship Caesar. That was the problem. It was not who you did worship. It was the fact that there's someone else that we say you should worship that you were not worshiping. And we are going to find that worship is the line. That's where the line in the sand is being drawn today. You, go, you call your God whatever name you want. You call him Jesus, whatever you want to, but then you see how they redefine Jesus. You just have to agree with the values and beliefs that we tell you. We want you to conform to what we believe about marriage. We want you to conform to what we believe about sex. And a host of other topics. I've just named two of the, of the hot ones that come up now. They want us to forsake our loyalty to the word of God and worship and think and believe according to their standards. The climate into which the Christian church was birthed had all of these. You go through the the characters that you read of in the New Testament, and you find that there were what you'd call Herodians. And that is those that had decided that the way to get along was to have just complete and total compromise with Rome. Uh, they knew how the power worked. They decided to cooperate with the power. They even helped the Romans rule the Jewish people. They had gone all the way over to cooperation. They were, they were being purely political. You had the Herodians. You had Sadducees who resembled more or less liberal church leaders and thinkers of today. Most of the Levites and priests were Sadducees. They had control of the temple. You know something about them if you read the New Testament, that they, they didn't uh, believe in a lot of basic biblical doctrine. They didn't believe in the resurrection or demons or angels. They were pretty worldly wise compromisers who wanted to be loyal in name only to Judaism while accommodating to Rome and really just staying distinct from 
Rome on just a purely ceremonial level. And then a third group would have been the Pharisees. These were more of your really conservative Bible-believing ones. These would be the ones that would most resemble present-day evangelicals today. They were zealous for the law, and they taught the common people to, be, to obey the law. But, of course, as you know, the, the movement declined. And uh, I always like to think of the Pharisees as something that, w when you read of their origins, they kind of began like the promise keepers. <laughs> A group of men who vowed, we're going to be just thoroughly obedient to the Word of God in every way. And then pretty soon they became self-righteous ones and they began to see their aspirations after holiness as, you know, this is making us better than other people. And pretty soon they looked down with contempt at others. And this is why Jesus would say about the Pharisees, do as they say, but don't do like they do. They're hypocrites. And then the fourth group were the zealots. You read of one of Jesus' disciples being a zealot. These were those out in the militia movement. They would have been the hardcore of the right wing. These would have been folks that were openly hostile to Rome and defiant, and who would have said anybody that differed with their stance were compromisers. And then there were Essenes. The Essenes were the monastics. The Essenes are the fellows that we pretty much uh, credit with preserving the Dead Sea Scrolls for us. They went out into the desert and waited for the end of the world. They dropped out of national life. They decided the, the safest way to deal with ungodliness in government was to withdraw into seclusion. So what have I just told you? This illustrates that when the people of God are confronted with evil authority, they generally make one of five choices. Surrender completely, surrender sort of, resist sort of, resist completely, or give up and drop out. Those are the five choices we make. <laughs> now, I've, not I've not named those five to make fun of them and to say they all did the wrong thing. Not at all. I named those five to show you the variety of situations that we'll find ourselves in and the variety of responses that we're prone to. And what does that tell us? It tells us that we need wisdom to relate to ungodly authority. Because we're, we've all got an inclination to one of those five directions. We may, you know, be, be prone to surrender completely and say, I'm just going to go along like the Herodians, or surrender sort of while holding on ceremonially like the Sadducees, or resist somewhat like the Pharisees did, resist completely like the Zealots, or just drop out like the Essenes did and give up. And under evil governments, believers find themselves looking over the field of choices and say, you know, what, what am I going to have to do? When will I have to plant my feet? You'll have these choices to make. But when we do that, and when we're applying the Scriptures as we ought to, what they will draw our attention to is this. There are two key things we've got to be thinking about. What exactly is God doing in history right now? What is He doing for His people? What's the work that God providentially is about? And then what is He calling His people to do? How is He calling us to live in response to this? And so that enables us to rest in the God of providence. And to not trouble ourselves unduly, yes, it's, it's natural to be troubled, it's natural to be concerned about some of these trends, but to not trouble ourselves excessively into thinking that the events and the news in the world and what the powers that be are doing is the main thing. It's not the main thing. Those aren't the main things. Or what this party or that party is doing. Keep your focus on what, what is God doing behind all that? How, is, how did God use President Trump? How will God use President Biden? How is God going to use other authorities in our nation? 
This seems to be what the Jews who went back did. They said, God has given us opportunity to serve him through this. They were able to take a favorable providence with praise on their lips. They were able to say in truth and believe it that the king's heart is like a river of water and the Lord turns it wherever he wills. And that includes a king, that includes congressmen, and as in the outcome of it, we will see it includes whether it's God's plan to bless a nation or to judge a nation. And this, this keeps coming up in different portions of the scriptures. Habakkuk, you remember that book? He had to realize, and he had to teach his people to realize, that God had stirred ungodly nations to come crush Israel in judgment. And so if you see politicians make havoc of our nation, well, we, we become, we, we get bitter and resentful and annoyed and angry. They are tearing down something that had many benefits and blessings. But if they, if they are destructive, who might be behind that? What is God doing? Is the Lord giving America what she deserves? Is the Lord doing what might be necessary to bring us to repentance? Or if great things happen, you know, if... If a, if a day comes that abortion is abolished very suddenly, and we praise God for it, you know, we, we may or may not like or agree with necessarily even the, some of the people behind decisions that are good decisions, but be thankful for the hand of God in them, whoever it is that carries out those things. Don't fall into discouragement or fear or dread. If men in high places do awful things that make the situation much worse, God is still at work. He's already proven that in the most heinous acts that have ever been done. What was worse than the murder of the Son of God? What was, wor what was, the most, what, what was a more heinous, awful act than to do that? And yet, according to Psalm 2 and Acts 4, they just carried out what was the predestined plan of God to take place? They did exactly what he designed. So don't fret too much. God may use that ungodly ruler in some remarkable way to bless his church more than we know. Christians too often also, and if you watch believers interact over this subject, you see it. Christians too often make the mistake of identifying how it goes with their nation as to how it's going with the kingdom of God. And I don't know that there's a nation anywhere more prone to this than America. You let anything bad happen in America, and what do you see explode on Facebook? People start saying, must be the end times. This has got to be the last days. Why? Well, because bad stuff's happening in my neighborhood. Well, gee, I didn't know the world revolved around your street, you know? <laughs> No, how it goes with the kingdom of God may not have much to do with how it goes in your nation. That has never been true and never will be. But we think that the unthinkable has occurred if our nation comes down at the hands of evil men. What if Islam took over? Remember how Habakkuk was so shocked to learn when rulers more wicked than they were coming to destroy them. And the Jews were always shocked when God let their nation be crushed by others. Christians were stunned when Rome was sacked. What if Israel is to be crushed again? Why would that be a bigger shock than when God did it before? And so certainly don't think that great changes in our nation, or even the dissolution of our nation, the breaking apart of our nation into more than one nation, or 
Who knows what other kind of outcome? That these are any sign that God's kingdom is reeling out of control or that we need to be alarmed. You and I have got to find that we can serve Christ with whoever is in power. We can do that. Just remember this. Walk according to our calling in Christ and commit to our obedience to His Word and purity of His worship. And you'll know then when you commit to those things, you know when you have to stop cooperating and when you have to start resisting. If they tell us who we must worship or how we must worship them or how to go about our worship, well, it's, that's where we have to plant our feet. That's the root of the matter. That's what stands out in the book of Ezra. Yes, the USA is moving in an increasingly intolerant direction when it comes to the acceptability of holding beliefs that say these things are right, these things are wrong. The pressures on us are not the same as previous generations in this land faced. Ways in which we have been permitted to serve God may not allow, may, may not continue to be allowed. They might demand cooperation from us on levels that we cannot give. None of us can foresee all the details, but the, the sketchy outlines are, are there. It's very clear that there are people in power that would like to compel us to submit on a wider level than we have been pressured to before. And how will we know when to plant our feet and say, not one inch further? Where is that line? It's usually in the realm of obedience and worship. When have they told us to do something God has said not to do? When are they requiring that we worship God according to their standards? Yes, we just lost a president for whom I said we have some things to be thankful for. And yet even then, you know, was he not a president with a mixed message? Here is someone who would speak well of Christianity, and when he was put on the spot and asked to speak of gay rights, he'd speak well of gay rights. Does that mean it was a compromise to support him? Not at all. We were, just, we were giving thanks for someone who continued to allow us to worship God according to our, our truth, according to the truth as we're taught, even if he was a mess on some fronts. And so now that has changed. And someone has stepped into power who thinks of people like me as an enemy to defeat. Well, as Theodore Beza told the king of France, you know, the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So bring your hammer on and expect it to be broken. <laughs> Those early Christians were found to be among the best citizens in the empire. And they worked hard, and they supported their government in prayer, and they were faithful and loyal neighbors, and they paid their taxes. But you know what? Once a year they wouldn't burn a pinch of incense in sacrifice to the emperor because they knew what that meant when you had to do that and say Caesar is Lord. And that meant an acknowledgement of the divinity of Caesar. And this they would not do because, you see, they understood when the price tag is compromise and worship, we won't cross that line. That's what we won't do. Likewise, when Daniel was found praying to his God, when they said that you could pray to no God but the king for 30 days, well, that was not something that a godly man could live with. Or when they insisted that he join the worship of their gods, uh, he will not modify how he prays to suit them, and he will not add praying to their God to suit them either. He won't do that. And if your government ever comes here and tells us what we must do in worship, that we must bow to this or that, or that we must accept all persons of all faiths as honoring to God as they understand Him, 
or we have to ordain elders or church staff who are immoral people, according to their uh, insistence. No, they, we have to say you lack the authority to say what goes on in the church of Jesus Christ. That's not your realm. You don't have the right to do that. The line of division always takes place at obedience and worship. But a final word on this. God stirred up Cyrus. And so let's remember, God can stir up people whose hearts are opposed to him. God can change the hearts of people who are opposed to him by his word. And this should encourage any of us that God can provoke not only those people, but likewise, he can, he can work among us to stir us to do what's right. You know, every church I've ever been part of and every church I've ever held leadership in, I could see things that weren't being done right. I could see things that we ought to be doing which we weren't doing yet or things that weren't being done well that needed to be done better. But I could pray for God to stir up and work among His people in that. And the same has been true individually. Every day of my life, I've been able to see things that I, ways I could serve God better and ways that I needed to learn to serve God better. And He, he can work in me. He can work in you. He can work in His church in the same way that He worked in Providence in the life of Cyrus. And don't give up, brethren. He's at work in our nation. No matter who's in charge, He's at work in this nation. And He will accomplish His will. You and I want to be part of it. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for <clears throat> gathering us this morning, and we love how you nourish your people on your word. We, we depend on it. We have come to rely on it. We need you to shepherd us week by week. Without you, we can bear no fruit. Without you, we will go astray. We need abundant grace from your hand to to guide us. We need abundant wisdom from your spirit at work in our hearts to lead us. Help us to walk with you in the midst of uh, both our own fleshly battles with sin and in the midst of ungodly and worldly resistance from the nation around us. Help us to learn from Ezra today to, to walk with you no matter whether, what other men and women are doing. To walk with you to commit to obedience in your service and worship and give us abundant grace uh, to accomplish that we ask in Christ's name. Amen.